Now, good evening. It's good to see you all again, and we look to the Lord for his help. We're going to read, uh, as we did last evening, in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in chapter 1. And we'll read together that single sentence in the Greek language, which uh, makes up verses 3 to 14 in our Bibles. Verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. And we do trust that God will graciously bless our continuing study of these verses. We were in verses 3 to 6 last evening, and uh, we were looking there at what we have uh, put the little heading against, the will of the Father the sovereign will of the Father in his great purpose in bringing the church into being. And uh, that will has been effected. Uh, the process by which it has been accomplished is in the work of the Son, and that is our subject for this evening in verses 7 through 12. Tomorrow evening, in the will of God, we will look at the two verses that complete the section, 13 and 14, and we will be thinking again uh, then, about the witness of the Holy Spirit. So, all three persons of the Godhead involved in this great unfolding of truth concerning God's purpose uh, for the ages. We noticed last evening that uh, each section ends with words like this, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Uh, in verse Number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, the conclusion of the verse, unto the praise of his glory. This is the purpose of it all. It's to the praise of the glory of God and his grace. It's wonderful that God has, in his goodness, revealed this to us. We would never otherwise have known of it. It's that which has been uh, referred to in verse number 9 as the mystery of his will. We'll come to that, God willing, in a little while. So last evening we left off in verse 6, and uh, we were thinking of the Lord Jesus, in whom we have been made accepted. We have been highly favored in him. He's called here the beloved, and the one who is the beloved of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the one of whom it says in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we'll just think about those two expressions to start with. Uh, redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Now, 
the things I'm going to say about the subject of uh, redemption, I imagine will be well known to believers who have been uh, saved and taught for a little while, but we're conscious that there's always another generation growing up. Perhaps they haven't been taught these things, so uh, if you know them very well, like the back of your hand, well, you'll just bear with me for a moment while I speak about them. We hope just uh, rehearsing them will be a refreshment to your soul. When you read words like redemption and bought and purchased, words like that in the New Testament, um, and they're to do with the whole great matter of, of the salvation which God has provided, it's well worth uh, taking up the various helps that are available to you in book form or online that will help you to understand the words that are used. Uh, principally, three Greek words are used when it comes to the whole matter of redemption. And the first of them uh, is a word that simply means to purchase in a marketplace. And um, I suppose for the sake of our imagination, our clarity, our understanding of it, we're not so much thinking of a marketplace where you might buy your fruit and vegetables and things like that. It's really the marketplace where slaves were purchased where slaves were sold. The most basic word uh, simply means to buy in the marketplace. And um, I want you to turn in your Bible, please, just so you can see this for yourself. I want you to turn to the second letter of Peter, chapter 2. Peter's second letter, chapter 2, the first verse says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, destructive sects and divisions, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Denying the Lord that bought them. They're not safe people. Very clear they're not safe people. They're false teachers, and they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and they're out to thwart and spoil the work of God. These are not safe people. And yet our verse tells us they're even denying the Lord that bought them. But that's our most basic word for buying for purchasing, for buying in the marketplace. And the thought is this, that the one who created all things and uh, who in the grand purpose of God saw that dominion over the works of his hands was put into the hands of a man, Adam, that when Adam handed over that dominion to the evil one, it was deemed in heaven to be a legal transaction. In other words, the dominion had been given to Adam. He handed it over, and heaven recognizes that he did that. So even though the Lord has created all things, and by creatorial right they are his, there's a recognition that in restoring them all, a purchase price will be paid so that there will never be any challenge that these things have been recovered just by superior power. Heaven recognizes Adam's part in handing over that dominion to the evil one. Now, it isn't to be pursued to the nth degree, so we start asking questions like, who's paying whom and how much? It, it's simply to give us the, the thought and the concept, the idea, that, that where a debt, a moral debt, has been incurred, then a price has to be paid. So in, this, in his sacrificial death at Calvary, the Lord Jesus is seen as having paid an infinite price that will definitely more than cover any moral debt that was incurred when Adam forfeited his dominion. You might recall that in Matthew chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom... The fifth and sixth parables are about a merchantman. 
And in those fifth and sixth parables, where he purchases a field that has the treasure in it, and where he purchases the pearl of great price, he sells all that he has in order to make that purchase. He buys the field in that fifth parable, and the Lord has already explained to his disciples that the field is the world. So in Matthew 13, the Lord is seen in the parable of having paid a price that has purchased the entire field and all that is in it. So that means that every sinner, like these false teachers here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, every sinner, every person who lives on the face of the earth, everything in and on the earth, is not only the Lord's by creatorial right, but it is his by redemptive right. Because in his blood he has paid a price more than sufficient to discharge the moral debt that Adam incurred. It's the broadest word for the purchase. And it's a purchase whereby uh, the world has been bought. We have been bought. Paul writes to the Corinthians, remember? He said, your body's not your own. You've been bought with a price. And he's referring to this overall purchase price where everything he created, he has also redeemed. I suppose if we were to take up the, uh, the next word, um, which is that basic word uh, for purchasing in a marketplace, agorazo, now the next word has a little prefix, which means to buy out of the marketplace. The difference would be this. That, that say uh, there's a man and he goes to the slave market, he wants to buy a particular slave, uh, he wants to buy someone for work around the house. So he goes to the slave market, he's got his eye upon a particular fellow there, and uh, he speaks to the trader, he agrees a price, he pays the money. He starts to lead that hapless slave uh, away from the market when somebody he knows who's also got an eye for good slaves he comes up and he said, oh, you bought that fella. I was looking at him myself. How much did you pay for him? He said, well, that's for you to find out. He said, well, I'd buy him off you. How much would you take for him? So there's a little bit of bartering going on, and the first man who bought the slave can see there's a chance of a fast buck here. So uh, he agrees a price with the second man, and that poor slave, he sold a couple of times in five or ten minutes. Just buying and trading in the marketplace. That's the basic word. But now the word we're thinking of, the second word, and it's the word used in Galatians chapter 3, for example, how that the Lord Jesus has delivered Israel from under the curse of the law. He has redeemed them from under the curse of the law. The word now used is that basic word for purchasing or selling in the marketplace. But now there's a little addition. So imagine that man goes into the marketplace, he's, he sees that slave, and uh, good fit young man, agrees a price, he buys him. And he takes him back to his home, and he's a kindly master, and so he says to this slave whom he's just bought, he said, now, if you behave yourself, and you work well, and you're obedient, he said, I give you my word that you'll never be back in that dreadful place again. You're my slave. And I promise that I will look after you and give you humane conditions. And all the time you obey me and all the time you're obedient, then I give you my word you'll never be back there again. You see, he's been purchased out of the marketplace. He's not going to be back there again. Something of his dignity is restored. Still a slave, but he's not just going to be traded this week and the month beyond as well. And that's really the thought, you see, for the redemption of Israel from under the curse of the law. They had incurred the curse of the law by the fact they had signed up to that contract at Sinai, but they had failed it, they had disobeyed it, the penalty clause had kicked in, and the penalty clause was very strict. You either keep the law in its entirety or you die. And they failed to keep the law. They were under its curse. But Christ came so that in his sacrificial death at Calvary, he might not only pay a price that would see 
the legal purchasing back of everything that Adam forfeited, but more particularly, it would see the redemption price paid for Israel. And the way that he did that was by being made a curse himself. He took the full weight of Israel's curse upon himself, and because that discharged that condition of the law, it meant that God could now righteously terminate that contract, that old covenant, the Old Testament. He could, he could righteously terminate that because the penalty clause had been fulfilled. And so Israel has been delivered out from under the law and they will never be under it again. You see the, the, the parallel with purchasing out of the slave market. They'll never be under it again. See, when the word of God says about us, for example, in Titus chapter 2, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And when here in our passage in Ephesians chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the third word is used. Different from the other two. And the word that is used here if we go back to our picture of the hapless slave, under our first word, he could just have been bought and traded, bought and traded in the slave market. In the second instance, he's bought out of the slave market. He's not going to go back there. But now in this case, when it's dealing with your redemption and mine, then the word that is used to go back to our picture of the man who's just bought the slave he, he pays the purchase price. He leads the slave out of the slave market. He takes him back to his home. And when he's got that slave in front of him at his home, he says, I've paid a high price for you. And then he turns to somebody alongside him. He says, strike off the man's shackles. He said, you're in my home now. And you're no longer a slave. You're a free man. I've purchased you to give you your liberty. And that's the word we've got here. That's the word that, I hope that's not a long way about going to explain this. But this is the redemption that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 1. Isn't it wonderful? That, that we weren't just in some slave market, we were in absolute bondage to sin. Sin was our master. And under all that terrible bondage and under the worst of masters, a price has been paid sufficient to satisfy any claim against us. You see, when the scripture says that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, we haven't been just translated, moved from one sphere to the other through the superior power of Christ. By superior power, he could have taken us out of bondage into liberty. By superior force, he could have taken us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own love. But that's called kidnapping. The devil has a legal right to us as men and women who are in Adam. And so when we were redeemed, the thought is, not that a price was paid to the devil or anything like that, but simply it's teaching us that in order that we might be legally delivered from the thraldom of sin, legally delivered from the mastery of the devil, so that no accusation for all eternity could ever be leveled that we've simply been kidnapped out of his domain. A price of infinite value was paid in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there isn't a force in heaven or hell or anywhere in the created universe that can ever level, ever level a charge against us. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, who can lay any charge to God's elect? There's none. So in whom we have redemption, and it's through his blood. It's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.18 when he speaks of that precious blood. You're not redeemed with such corruptible things as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. So now, redemption having been effected, and the 
deliverance from the bondage of sin having been effected, through that same precious blood we have obtained forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ has laid that righteous foundation whereupon God can move in mercy to the repentant sinner. And where there's repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, God is just to forgive. And so we've not only been delivered from sin's bondage and power, but we've been delivered from sin's penalty, and we stand before God in glorious liberty. Delivered from all that chained us, from all that held us back. But now, that redemption and that forgiveness of sins is all according to the riches of his grace. The grace of God is being magnified, and it's being amplified. There's nothing for a second in us or of us that deserved any of this. Because if we had, it wouldn't be of grace. The whole glory of God's grace is that he has bestowed such liberality, such wonderful blessing upon those who not only didn't deserve it, but rather deserved his eternal judgment. But now... In those riches of his grace, that's the subject of verse 8, wherein, that is, in which grace, he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I want to think with you about this for a moment. One of the great reassurances of the truth of election as we saw last evening God saves according to purpose so there's never such a thing as a second class Christian and we're not saying that just to try and give a little pep talk but young brother young sister you might feel that in the big machinery of the local assembly or whatever you're just a very small cog and, and there's perhaps not much you feel you're doing or can do but understand this, that in the sight of God, no Christian is more precious to the heart of God than another. As parents, we try and see to it that, um, that we don't have favorites amongst our children. We try and make sure that they're treated equally so that they grow up realizing that there's no need to be jealous of their siblings. It's... Um, I don't know if I should tell you this or not, but my, my dad famously said once he was suffering with a migraine headache or something, and this dear sister, she looked at the five kids, four boys and a girl, and she said, oh, Mr. Coulson, she said, only one girl. Surely she must be the favorite. And he said, no, I hate them all equally. <laughs> you know, it was just, uh, well, what, wasn't a good moment to ask him, really. You know, but, um, but one way or another, there wasn't any favorite, you see. So, um, but, but I mean, if we strive for that in, in, in the earthly realm, uh, that which we strive for, God achieves effortlessly. And he sees the same value in every child of God. Because every child of God, he's paid the same price for. And so, when Paul says... Uh, Concerning the riches of God's grace, he's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The subject is still redemption. It's still the purchasing. The purchasing is in accord with the riches of his grace. When it came to paying the redemption price, there is no bottom to the pocket of a redeeming God. There's no limit to his wealth. There's no limit to his riches. And so he has abounded toward us in all that liberality, but he's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So when did you last buy something and think, ah, that wasn't a good idea? Seemed a good idea at the time, not a good idea now. Maybe it is that um, whatever it was you were going to buy, you did a little bit of research, and um, <clears throat> so you went online and, and you looked at Amazon or something, and, and you looked down, you just filtered all the five-star 
uh, reviews and everything. And you thought, okay, I've got a choice of this brand, that brand, or that brand. I'll go for that one. And then when you bought the thing, you're disappointed with it. And somebody said, you didn't buy that one. Oh, come on, everyone knows that that's rubbish. You know, you should have gone for this. And so the wisdom of your purchase is cast into doubt. Or it might be that you did buy the best one. And in buying the best one, when your credit card bill came through, you realize you've got no money for food for the rest of the month. You see, we often make purchases, don't we? Well, I don't know if we often do, but, but I suppose each of us at some time in our life, we've purchased something that was either not wise or it wasn't particularly prudent. Do you see what Paul's saying? That when God, in Christ, through his blood, paid the redemption price for you and for me, he knew exactly what he was buying into. He abounded unto us in all wisdom and prudence. And I'm speaking very reverently now, but just to make the point, if we could say to God, do you consider it was worthwhile? He'd say, I made the right choice and I paid the right price. Isn't it tremendous? This isn't to make us proud. This is to make every believer look at the believer next to them and realize that by the grace of God we stand united in Christ, infinitely precious to God, that there's no forgotten believers with him. There's none in the background and some in the foreground. God has purchased every one of us by the precious blood of Christ. And, and if ever challenged or questioned as to whether he had done the right thing, he said, my choice was both wise and it was prudent. The thing is, dear child of God, I know a little bit, not all, but I know a little bit about the failures of this man that God purchased. The ways in which I would stumble, fail, let him down, not fulfill my potential. And if I had bought me, I would be very, very disappointed. Isn't it wonderful that God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence? He's accepted us in the beloved. He's made us what we are. He sees us in Christ. And we look at each other and we look at ourselves and the devil loves us to do that and he loves for me to be able to spot with an eagle eye all the problems that you've got. And even occasionally to see some of the problems that I've got. God said, I'm not looking at the problems. I'm not looking at the raw material. I'm not looking at, at, at these dear people still marred and scarred by all the effects of the fall. He said, I'm looking at a people I've purchased with the precious blood of Christ and who one day I'm going to conform to his image. Did I make the wise choice? God says, absolutely. Was the price worth paying? God says, absolutely. And who knows better than God the price that was paid? I think as I imagine in my mind's eye that blessed man, the Lord Jesus, hanging in agony and shame on the cross, He's doing it to save my soul. And to think that even as he had my name upon his heart, he knew all the faults and failings that I would display. But one day, one day he's going to look upon the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Earth redeemed from its curse, everything legally restored that Adam forfeited, Israel restored as a nation, heaven full of believers like you and me, all finally changed into his image. And as that blessed man runs his eye over the whole fruit of his redemptive work, he will see of the travail of his soul. He'll say it was all worth it. It's great to be saved, isn't it? Did you thank God today for saving you? Don't get used to it, will you? The moment we get used to it, the moment we lose the wonder of it, we'll lose the worship in our hearts. 
if you didn't bow your heart consciously before God today and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you didn't thank him for salvation today, your heart's cold. There's something wrong. Get into his presence, even tonight before you go to bed. Perhaps as you lay your head upon the pillow tonight, maybe, maybe the words of this poor preacher would just ring in your ears. Don't sleep before you thank God from the depth of your heart for redemption in Christ Jesus. There's no one and nothing eternally will ever be able to lay claim to you again or to separate you from the love of God. He's abounded unto us in all wisdom and prudence. And he's also made known unto us the mystery of his will. According to the good pleasure which he's purposed in himself. So now there's something more that, that God has now revealed to those whom he has purchased, those who've been redeemed, people like you and me. And, and what God has done He's not only saved us, redeemed us, forgiven our sins, but uh, he's now made known unto us something about his will and his purpose that previously had been hidden. That's what a New Testament mystery is. It's truth that has been hidden until the time has come for God to reveal it. He never revealed this. To men and women in Old Testament days, who in terms of their personal godliness... We're head and shoulders with respect above you and me. Those great Old Testament worthies. And yet they didn't know what is called here the mystery of God's will. He hid it from them. But it's been revealed to us and the particular aspect of God's will which is all according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. It's all of God. It's all from his sovereign heart. God said, this is what I'm going to do, and this is why I'm going to do it. This aspect of his will is this, verse number 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. What does all that mean? Well, let's think about this idea of a dispensation. Generally speaking, <clears throat> In uh, local assemblies of God's people that meet in the way that you do here, um, for the past 150 and more years, there has been a line of teaching which has gone under the heading generally of dispensationalism. That term and the teaching it stands for is being rubbish today in a big way. And the men who've got the big fancy websites and the big online ministries and all this sort of thing, almost all of them would teach contrary to this. But here, the I didn't take the time to check the ESV. Who's got an ESV? Does it give the same word? Dispensation? Plan. Plan, okay. It's a bit more than a plan in a way, <clears throat> with respect. Because um, the, the idea of a dispensation... I suppose in the old English of it, when you dispense something, you're, you're giving something out. We talk about a dispensing chemist. You probably talk about pharmacists, I don't know. We talk about a dispensing chemist, someone who doles out the pills. So um, it's, it's, the, it, it's the way in which divine administration is being handled. I, I say that because the basic word, the word from which dispensation plan comes from, uh, is, is a compound of two Greek words. One means law, and the other means house. So it's kind of the law of the house. Uh, and, and it's about how things are administered. So, so think about the law of your house. I'm talking to those of you um, who have your own families and homes and probably kids, and, or those of you still living in homes like that. Um, it was back in 1974 that Rachel and I were married and set up home. And, um, well, there was a way we ordered our home, and it, and it was pretty easy, actually. It was quite nice. Let's go out this afternoon. So we go out this afternoon. Uh, let's eat in tonight. Well, no, hang on. We always had to do that. We had no money. So, uh, 
anyway, you get the idea. You know, it was, it was very easy. It, it was just the two of us, and we kind of just worked it. That's the way the home ran. Then one day she said, I've been to the doctor today. Oh, yeah. Gonna have a baby. Oh, that's great news. That's wonderful. So, you know, as we planned for the baby to arrive, uh, like most prospective parents with the first child, figure it all out, and you say, uh, of course, when this little scrap arrives, it's not going to make any difference. You know, we'll just carry on the way we do. After all, it's a baby. It'll conform to the way we do things. <laughs> Anyone waiting for that balloon to be burst? And suddenly, this little six-pound scrap comes into our life, and the whole world turns upside down. Uh, and the ordering of the house changes. Something critical has happened, very pleasantly critical, but I'm using the word in its right sense. Something critical, something uh, life-changing has happened, and this little baby's come into the home, and where the home order once revolved around two people, it now revolves around this little child. There's been a change of dispensation. There's been a change in the way that the house is ordered. A, a change in the way things are administered. And that little baby starts to grow, and then number two comes along, and the school days, and all this kind of thing. You can imagine how that, how that the, um, that the ordering of the house, it, it's it's evolving, it's changing down through the years. And uh, then one day, one of the kids comes in, and and uh, oh, I'm getting married or whatever, you know. And, and eventually, the little ones you brought up clear the house; they're gone. If you're fortunate. There'll be a gap between them doing that and the grandkids coming along. And if you're anywhere near that period of time, make the most of it. Because then if the grandkids come along and they live nearby, then it's kind of rinse and repeat, you know, and, and you have to put a lock back on the freezer and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so what's happening is that the law of the house, the ordering of the house is changing. Every time something uh, important happens there's a change of dispensation. Now, down through the course of time, which God has mapped out and planned with absolute detail, he does everything uh, according to the counsel of his own will, but, but as, as things develop, so the dispensation changes. So, for the first couple of thousand years of Earth's history, he's dealing with mankind as, as one entity, but then the rebellion at Babel put paid to that, and that crisis brought about a change of dispensation. And God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he began to deal with one nation. And when that nation crucified its Messiah, then, then God gave them opportunity to repent, and when they didn't take it, he set Israel to one side and dealt with the church, and that formed the, another dispensation. It's not so much marked by dates on a calendar, as by the manner in which God is dealing with the world of men. And that's really all we mean by dispensationalism. It's recognizing that uh, God has dealt and is dealing separately with the Gentile, the Jew, the church. We don't confuse the programs he has for each. And we see that God is unfolding his purpose down through the course of time. And what he's revealed to us in making known the mystery of his will, that part of his will which hadn't been revealed in Old Testament days, it's now made known to Christians like you and me, it is that there's a dispensation coming, a manner of God's administration that is coming, that is called the fullness of times. Here it is, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of of times. And uh, the thought of those times is epochs, um, particular uh, chunks of Earth's history, when God has dealt in a certain way. So we've spoken about him dealing with the, with the, the world of men, the Gentiles, and with Israel, and with the church. And, and these are all different strands, different epochs, different seasons in Earth's history, and, and what God has revealed to us now is that he's bringing all of these things into conjunction in a future dispensation, which is called the fullness 
of times. He's bringing all those different times together in a coordinated way, and, and the fullness of times doesn't just mean that their period has elapsed, but the purpose of it has elapsed as well. He's fulfilled a particular purpose in this dealing. He's fulfilled another purpose in this dealing. He, he's got all these different projects, periods, epochs, call them what you will, and, and he's gathering them all together so that they perfectly blend in a dispensation that's called the fullness of the times. That fullness of the times is the millennial reign of Christ. That's when all these things are going to merge together. So God has revealed to us the mystery of his will, previously unknown. It's something which he's devised according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself. So that in this period that we've just thought about, this thousand-year period of time which is going to be marked by a form of divine administration that's never been seen before. It'll be the manifestation of God's kingdom. In that dispensation of the fullness of times, he's going to gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, when you lift your Bible helps and you look at this expression, gather together, going to find a very wonderful thing. You're going to find another compound Greek word. The one word is really the thought of the head or headship. And uh, it's got a prefix which is the thought of something being done again. He's going to restore in Christ the whole matter of headship. What was that? Well, that's when, at the beginning in creation, God gave to the man and the woman, equal in status, joint dominion over the works of his hands, but accountability in the hands of the male alone. That very order of things that was set up in Genesis 1 and 2, which in itself was a reflection of the way heaven works, that's going to be finally realized in that dispensation of the fullness of times. Because God's purpose won't be thwarted. That's what he's going to do. And that which failed under the first Adam is going to be gloriously seen under the last Adam. And so this principle of headship, it's the way heaven works because 1 Corinthians 11 instructs us that the head of Christ is God. Two co-equal members of the triune Godhead. And yet for the Godhead to work in harmony, Christ willingly, gladly, deliberately submits his will to the will of the Father. That's headship. The glory of headship is in the submission of one will to another. And that's the way heaven works. It's the way creation was intended to work. Adam subject to Christ, Eve, subject to Adam, Christ, subject to the Father. And as we think about this, we think of the words of the so-called Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So the operation of heaven, which was reflected in the administration of earth before the fall, is going to be gloriously restored in Christ, in his millennial reign. But it's not going to be Adam and Eve. It's going to be Christ and the church. Can you see how Paul is building this up for the Ephesians to get a grasp of how wonderful this whole business of their salvation is? That God, in his goodness, has laid out a blueprint, a plan for the ages to show where you and I fit into the whole thing. And God said, that which I instituted in creation and which was spoiled through Adam's sin, is going to be wonderfully put on display in all its heavenly order in the millennial reign of Christ. But to enable that to be done, demanded the whole redemptive work of Christ, and the forgiveness of sins, and the acceptance of sinners saved by divine grace. And God said, this is how I'm going to head it all up. All things 
are going to come under his headship in a future day. All things. We know they're also going to come under his lordship. That's a different matter. The glory of lordship lies in its authority and power to make people submit to his will. That's lordship. He imposes his will, and he's got the power to do it, and he's got the authority to do it. But it's not lordship that's in view here. It's headship that's in view. The glory seen in the submission of one will to another. And in the wonderful administration of the millennial realm, you and I will be involved. Did you know that? Well, now that's a question that Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When they were taking their fellow believers to court over petty matters and things like that, and he said, well, can you not sort out these things yourselves? Do you not know that you're destined to govern the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels, he said? Not judge in the sense of a law court, but judge in the sense of administer. Do you not know, says Paul to the Corinthians, first generation Christians, by the way, fresh out of idolatry, he expected them to know it. How much more should we? Do you not know, he said, that we shall administer angels? Do you not know that the saints are going to administer the world? Well, not a wonderful thing, isn't it? I don't know what you think about heaven and home. Maybe you're just thinking, well, when the Lord comes, I don't really need to know what happens after that. It'll all just happen. No, we're expected to take an intelligent interest in God's purpose in saving us. It wasn't just to deliver us from a well-deserved lost eternity. Wonderful though that would have been, if that's all it was about. Here in the opening of the Ephesian letter, the whole vast plan is being laid out before us. This is why God saved us. This is why he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is why that vast redemption price was paid. This is why we've had our sins forgiven. This is why the riches of his grace have been made known because we're going to be involved in this dispensation of the fullness of times when he gathers together in one all things in Christ, all that is in heaven and on earth, even in him. We have a couple of minutes. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, at least in the authorized version, the King James, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. But really the thought is, in whom we were appointed a heritage. It's not that we have gained an inheritance, but that we have been made an inheritance. For whom? Well, look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God puts a value on us. We think of that inheritance that Peter speaks about in chapter 1 of his first letter an inheritance that's laid up for us, incorruptible, undefiled, and so forth. The inheritance is being kept for us. We're being kept for it. It's absolutely sure. But what a marvelous truth this is, that God sees us as being an inheritance for himself, something of value that has come out of the death of another. That's really an inheritance, isn't it? And so we have been made in Christ as an inheritance, something of value for divine purpose, having been predestinated, says verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. We mentioned last evening, and we'll mention again, the distinction between predestination and election. Election is to do with salvation. Predestination is to do with God's purpose for those he has saved. Predestination is a truth for believers. It's about what God has previously and always intended to be the future for sinners saved by his grace. And that predestination, which isn't spoken of in detail here, but which we know from other scriptures, is that we shall be conformed to the image of of his son. God 
intends to populate heaven with millions of sinners saved by grace who are all like Christ. And that's what he's revealing to us here. And as Paul explains all this, and there must have been a wonderful song in his heart as he wrote these words, of a God who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. And how did we obtain it all? Who first trusted in Christ? That's all. Great day when we trusted Christ. Is there a dear friend here tonight and you're not saved? Let's just close the meeting with a word to you. All that we've spoken of, of the glorious future of the child of God, this wonderful blueprint of divine purpose, what God's plan is for the whole course of time, and how he's going to magnify Christ in the glory of his earthly kingdom, and believers in the Lord Jesus, sinners saved by grace, with him. Or to think that there might be a soul in this room tonight who's destined to go to hell rather than to share glory with Christ. And the only difference is that those who have this blessed prospect first trusted in Christ. Why would you not trust Christ as your Savior? Why would you not take the man of God's appointing who's demonstrated his love for you in his sacrificial death at Calvary and recognize that there is salvation in none other? There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if anything of what we've described as to the portion of the child of God revealed in these lovely verses this evening, if anything of this has perhaps touched your heart, remember, dear friends, young people here tonight, that all we have done to enter into the, the eternal fullness of all the blessings that God has laid out here is that when we heard the gospel concerning his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we repented. And we believed it. All these blessings, without limit and without exception, are for those who first trusted in Christ. May God bless his word to us. Shall we pray?